Uh, we're going to head into the reading. We're going to read from Philippians and Philippians chapter four, verses one to nine. And if you don't have a Bible or a phone or access to the Word in front of you, it's up on the screen, and um, you can read along with us there. And, and this is Paul talking to his people, his uh, the ones he loves in 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 Philippi, the church in in Philippi. And so um, he's dealing with something that's going on. He's got word back that there's some, some stuff going down and um, there's, there's a few issues. And so this is what he says. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Singta to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So far. So we're um, before I begin, I just want to acknowledge, and, and those of you that know um, and are uh, sensitive to the church calendar, today's Pentecost. How many of you knew that today? There you go. Some of you knew that. This is when we recognise and when we remember when Peter got up before when you know, and and when we finished the. I finished the series, when we finished the series we were talking about in Luke, when I talked about, you know, the, the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and then Jesus goes to the guys in the upper room where they were waiting, and he says to them, wait. Do you remember what he said to them to wait for? He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And that was going to energize them, and they waited, and they waited, and, and, and he came. And, and I think he came in a way that was totally unexpected to all of them. Even Peter himself, we love to look at Peter's sermon and his boldness and I, I wonder whether he was, as he was speaking out of it, he was thinking here, my goodness, my goodness, what's going on, what's going on, you know. But that's how the Holy Spirit works. And that was the beginning of the church as we know it. We're sitting here today because the Holy Spirit came, because the Holy Spirit decided to come and indwell us as believers and many in history. And even this story here, this church in Philippi, is a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the Word actually got, and I'll tell you in a minute, I'm going to give you a bit of background, the Word actually got off the Asian continent and onto Europe, into Europe. And it got to Europe and then it got to us. Australia, we're young, we were last, but heck, we got it all, didn't we? So it's great. So Paul is writing to, and let me give you a bit of history. Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome. He's imprisoned, but he's in house arrest. And he's awaiting to hear his fate, his judgment, what's going to happen to him. Um, and he's writing to this fledgling church, this kind of little church in Philippi, um, a place called Philippi. And it's actually a bit, the whole letter, if you read Philippians, and it's an easy read, a short read, it's actually a thank you letter. 
He just wants to be thankful. He wants to thank them for the encouragement they'd been to him while he was imprisoned, while he was under house arrest and while he was being abused. He wants to thank them that they were practical help as well as prayerful help, that they had really been helping him. They'd sent gifts. They'd sent gifts in kind. They'd sent him money to take care of his needs and they'd sent him everything he needs. And it's been 10 or 11 years since he planted the church in Philippi. And you might remember if you can cast your mind back and you know a little bit about Acts. In Acts when Paul has that dream and someone's calling him, that Macedonian dream, that was it. That was when he went across to Europe and into northern Greece there. And you might remember all the stories about that, how he established that church there. There's, there was, it's a very rich town and there was this fortune-telling girl that was talking, you know, that, that he cast the spirit out of. And there's a whole lot of stories. It's actually exciting when you look at how he planted the church. That was also where those prison cells were busted open when they were praising, when they were, you know, when, uh, when they busted out of prison and the prison guard says, oh, what do I have to do, you know? Um, it's great stories. So this is that church. This was his first church on European soil in northeastern Greece. It was also an outpost of the Roman Empire. It was a Roman colony specifically designed. It was so this is Greece. Remember, so the Romans went in and conquered Greece. They conquered this little part of Greece. And it was for retired soldiers that had served well. So it was kind of like a, you know, uh, Outlook Gardens or... Uh, other, you know, place it was kind of like the where these retired soldiers that had served well. There was lots of perks there. It was the only Roman Empire where there was no taxes. You didn't have to pay tax to Caesar. You were privileged because you had served in the Roman Empire. So it was kind of like these Romans took over this part of Greece and set up a little bit of a colony there, and it was really comfortable. Unfortunately, they tried to even take over the language, but that didn't work. It was a hard place to plant a church. You might imagine Paul going there and thinking, why was I called here? You know, there was no synagogue. Um, by the way, there, you know, and, and, and you'll notice in the story that he went by the water with women. Here's an interesting fact. That Philippi was a Roman colony on the European continent might explain why there wasn't enough Jews to permit the establishment of a synagogue. According to Jewish tradition, 10 Jewish men were required to form a synagogue. And it would seem that in Philippi, there wasn't even enough Jews to meet this minimal threshold. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to emphasize that Paul and his companions spoke to the women who had assembled alongside the river, which would have been just outside the boundaries of the colony. So without a synagogue or even 10 men to start one, Paul started with women. Outside the city. Maybe you remember, if I told you, do you remember Lydia? That was his first convert when he first went there. It was the first person that he converted to faith on European soil. She's called, he calls her a worshipper of God, which was a term for a converted Gentile. Now you were a Jew or you were a worshipper of God. If you're a Gentile, that, that become to believe. So he calls her a worshipper of God, and she went on to lead the house church there. Remember, it's not called a synagogue, but it's called a place of prayer because there was no synagogue. And because there were mostly women and they were not regarded by, by religious men as valid, maybe that's why they had to meet outside the city gates by the river, by the water. But Paul finds them. He goes back and finds them, and he's been encouraging them all the time. In his first, in his first trip there, he, he worked with them there. 
and built the church there. Paul loves them a lot and he has a lot of time for them. They'd supported him heavily financially and materially, even though they didn't have to. It wasn't their responsibility. So he wants to encourage them, but he also wants to exhort them. Paul never, and this is interesting about Paul, everywhere you read, Paul never loses sight of where people need to go, where they needed to go, where we need to go, where people need to go. He never wastes an opportunity to push just a little bit more, to take them to the next level. But he is troubled, and this is where some of this comes out of, because he's heard of discord, uh, trouble, some conflict, issues of pride, people um, feeling like they're better than the other and uh, that the other person is lower, um, comparing with each other, comparing um, perhaps lifestyles or comparing uh, how, how spiritual they were as opposed to how not spiritual they were. Um, and he wants to encourage them to humility and unity because the gospel must not suffer. Now, Paul's motivation is always the gospel. Of course, he cares about the people greatly, but the gospel must not suffer. And unity and a lack of unity and some of that infighting and discord was going to damage the gospel because this was an important foothold. This was an important mission on European soil. This was an important step of God moving the gospel even further. Remember when Jesus said, to the ends of the earth, this is out to the ends of the earth. See, the church is not immune from conflict and instability, is it? Any church. And all accounts tell us that these two ladies, the Odia and Sinta, were mature believers. They may have even been leaders of the church, some commentators might uh, would say. But Paul's interested in these two and interested in everybody because how we do personally and relationally affects our community and our mission. It isn't just about are you doing church well. How we do personally how we do relationally actually affects community and mission. And this is important. And this is why it's important to talk about it. Conflict is a funny thing. I was reading someone, someone, said, someone said this, and I guess they're a bit of a comedian. They said, you know, there's this funny thing about conflict. They say there's only one absolute. It's always the other person that's wrong. Isn't that right? Kind of right, but we laugh because we kind of actually think that ourselves sometimes. So this church has its challenges and um, I started being naughty in the office and thinking about, you know, a church full of women, having, you know, what do you, you know, etc. But I won't go there. Paul wants to encourage them, though. He loves them. He genuinely does. And it was, became a powerful church. But we don't live in a perfect world, do we? We don't live in a perfect world in our personal lives or our social lives or our family lives. We don't live in a perfect world in our society, in our world, and, and Rob's prayer point is, is, is a teller. There's a lot going on at the moment. That there's lots more than, than Rob could even just say then. We don't live in a perfect world in our society, in our lives, and even not in our churches, do we? But our mission is too important, isn't it? Conflict is a part of life on this side of glory. And it brings with it all sorts of consequences. All sorts of things come along with it too. And how we are, in, in whether that's family or society or church, and, and how we are and how we, are, how we feel personally and how we're relating matters too. Just like it did to Paul then. It matters to the kingdom. It matters to us. 
You know, conflict uh, is a part of a, a personal struggle. We end up in, in, in our personal lives, in personal struggle, in stress and in anxiety. You know, in a church, it creates, family, it creates division in the family. It's a lack of forward movement. Conflict uh, in, in the, both those realms, in our personal life, disturbs us and in our um, relational life or in our church and family life. So how can we learn from Paul, from how Paul encourages this church? What is it that we could learn um, and, and understand for ourselves, but also for us as a community? And it's really interesting because we're supposed to learn it. This, this, this note wasn't just to these two. Did you notice in there, if you have a look in, um, if you've got it up, you can have a look in, if in verse 3, he says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion. Has anyone ever wondered who that is? Okay, well, I did. You know, because who is my true companion? And so I'm reading and trying to find out who is this my true companion? Who is he addressing this to? And it actually is what they, it is a Greek word, it's a Greek word in there, and if translated into Australian, or into English rather, Australian, could be Australian, but translated into English, it's the bystander effect, is what they call it. That Paul, when he says, my true companion, he's talking to all of the listeners. He's assuming that everyone is hearing his letter into them personally, even though it's spoken to a whole group. My true companion, Joel. My true companion, Paul. My true companion, Joel. My true companion, I, whoever. He's assuming, and that's, in the, that's the original language. That's who it's for. So it's important. Paul wants everyone in the community to hear this. That this is important for everyone. He wants everyone to step up. In his, 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 he wants to encourage everyone, but he wants to, everyone to step up in his exhortation. He wants everyone to be part of the solution to the conflict or to the stress that this church is under at the moment. So how does he address it? What does he do? What can we learn? Well, he begins in verse 4 with encouragement to rejoice, doesn't he? He kind of starts right at there. He says, you know, rejoice in the Lord. And if you didn't hear me the first time, I'll say it again, rejoice. He repeats himself. Rejoice in the Lord and I'll say it again, rejoice. In fact, there's another interesting fact if you're interested. Philippians is outstanding as the New Testament letter of joy. The word joy or rejoice occurs 16 times throughout Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's not saying so. Be happy all the time. You know, walk into the church door or down to the river wherever your church is. Walk in with a smile on your face and a cheesy grin. All that. It's not fake cheerfulness that ignores reality but a joy that God has things in his hands. A joy that he is our Lord. Rejoice, and that's why it says rejoice in the Lord, not the circumstance. Now, I often catch myself being robbed of joy because my circumstances aren't what I want them to be. Or things aren't the way that I'd like them to be. And Paul's not saying, so rejoice anyway, so you spilt the milk, you know. He's saying rejoice in the Lord, not the circumstance. And it's a really interesting nuance there, isn't it? Paul is saying, I'm under house arrest. I'm doing it here too. It doesn't look good for me. I'm waiting for my judgment. I'm not sure what's going to happen. It doesn't look good for me. But I'm rejoicing in the Lord. As a Christian, rejoicing doesn't always depend on what's happening. But rejoicing depends on God. And we can rejoice because we know that God really does have the whole world in his hands. We sung it as kids and we kind of forgot it when we grew up. 
And we actually probably believed it as kids. But we forgot it when we grew up. That he does really have the whole world in his hands. And that includes your world right now, the way it is. Not just the world, China, Mr. Trump, the UK and Brexit, and all the big things that are happening, our government. Not just, he's got your world in his hand. And that means he knows it. Rejoice in the Lord because he's got your world in his hands. Paul goes on in verse 5, doesn't he? And he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now this has got to be a little bit of an exhortation, doesn't it? This has got to be a little bit of, hang on a second guys, you guys are displaying stuff that's not healthy. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Well, what does that even mean? Or maybe with this dispute in mind and, and for each one of them, this is what he's saying. There's a sense of encouragement but also exhortation. It's kind of, let your willingness to yield to God. Gentleness could be, your gentleness that he's talking about there in the original language is your willingness to yield to God. Let your willingness to yield to God be evident more than your chip on the shoulder being evident or your I'm not happy with that being evident to all or your you've offended me being evident to all. Or your, I disagree with you, or that, being evident to all. He's saying, switch that. This is the antidote. Let your willingness to yield to God be the thing that people see, rather than the thing that you're annoyed with, or the, the way that things aren't working. Change the way. What be, change what becomes evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Because if things like, I'm not happy, and if those things are playing, it's hard to rejoice, isn't it? It's hard to rejoice together when that sort of stuff. Can you imagine the, the, the church down by the river, the women, they're just having these little arguments and discussions and, and, and you did this last week and I don't like this and we should do it this way. Okay, let's, let's rejoice. It's not going to work. And it doesn't work in church and it doesn't work in life either. And isn't this what the cross models to us so wonderfully? The cross was a result of conflict, wasn't it? The cross had to happen because of conflict. Conflict between us and God. You think about that. The cross was a result of conflict. And while we were still, and Romans says this, and this is one, you'll hear me quote it a few times, but while we were still offending God, Christ in his willingness to yield to God died for us. And so his incredible grace and mercy became evident to all, to us and the world. Do you see that? Jesus took conflict. Christ, God, took conflict, brought the cross in, and his mercy and grace became evident to all. Rather than, I'm angry with you, you're, you're in sin. Think about that. That's what Jesus did. When we don't understand these two concepts, rejoice and your evident gentleness, our peace gets robbed. Doesn't it? We get anxious. Things we get anxious in community, um, in our personal life. Our peace gets robbed, don't we? You know how that works. Your mind is focused on the dispute or the issue, and there's no peace, and and then anxiety sets in. You suffer, and also the community suffers, and the mission suffers. That's why Paul goes on to say the next thing. Paul understands how people work. And that's why he goes on to say the next thing in verse 6, isn't it? Verse 6 is that one. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. 
That's why he goes in. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry. And you know, when I was preparing this message, it's, this is my challenge. This is, this is one of my weak spots, worry and anxiety and things grabbing a hold of me. And, and, and reading this stuff is, is, and thinking about this is really helpful. And Paul goes on to say, don't be anxious. Here's what someone once said about worry. If worry is my thing, if it's your thing too, here's what someone once said. 40% of our worries never happen or are out of our control. 30% of our worries concern the past, gone. 12% of our worries are needless worries about our health. That's my trap. 10% of our worries are insignificant or petty. 8% of our worries are legitimate. How would it be for you if you could worry 92% less than you do now? How cool would that be? Like, you know, does it really matter? I think that for our personal lives, but what about in community? Things that we get all worked up about. Really, is it a 92%er or is it an 8%er? Anxiety and worry mean we're assuming responsibilities that God never intended for us to have. We're trying hard to manufacture our own peace by our own hands. And it's a sin to carry them, in fact, the Bible talks about it. It's saying to God that we don't think he's enough to deal with the issues or the situations. You know, I looked up worry in, in Old English and, and the old, right back, there was this little article that talked about worry in Old English means to choke or to strangle. That's what it does to our peace and our productivity. Worry chokes and strangles your peace. Chokes and strangles your productivity. Chokes and strangles your forward movement. And Paul is so aware of this. Paul is such a modern person. Worry casts doubt on God's love. It casts doubt on God's ability to care. And you know, that's the enemy's goal and his strategy. That's his tool. If he can get you worrying, if he can get you anxious, he can get your mind off God in two seconds flat. And that's what he uses, doesn't he? He doesn't have to do anything. And so I'm convicted even saying this, even when I was preparing this. That's what the enemy wants. The enemy, and Paul saw that. Paul knew that this was an important church. This was an important mission. And these were important people. It wasn't just about the church. But he knew that if the conflict and worry and anxiety could become a part of their community, their focus would be off God and on themselves. And the enemy will have won. Or the enemy will have gained ground. And that's how it works in our life. That's what worry and anxiety does. I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that there aren't um, valid worries and anxieties and there aren't situations in our life or um, circumstances in our life or things that, that where it's not relevant, where it's not real. It is. But this is what God says to us. So then Paul says, he goes on to say, now pray. You know, don't be anxious about anything, but pray. And this is where um, uh, Scott was talking about this morning. And I started, is this the spiritual antidote? Is this what you just, just go and pray? No, he says, pray with thanksgiving. Focus changes when you're thankful and, be, when you're thankful and grateful, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that when you're feeling like you're really... Not yeah, maybe it's just me. You're not feeling it in church, and you're singing, ah. And then the worship comes, and you don't really sing along with the first song. Or if you do, you're only doing it because someone's watching, and you know you're probably going to do the right thing, you know. But 
as the, as the songs get, and you start reading the, th- the, the, the words and you start thinking about it and you start, all of a sudden something changes. You know, David knew that, the psalmist. You know, in that psalm where he says, you know, wake up, O soul, and praise the Lord, because if you don't, I'm doomed. Telling himself to praise. Pray, thankfulness and gratefulness changes your focus. It's hard to be mad or sad when you're being thankful or grateful, isn't it? Think about it. When you're busy talking about someone you're really thankful and grateful about, it's really hard to be mad or sad. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Only ever pray, only prayed prayers of thanks. See how long you can go before you ask God for something. Yeah, you know, it's like don't you? You say thank you, God, for taking care of me today. Now here's my list. Don't say it like that, but that's how it works, doesn't it? But when you're thankful and you're grateful, it changes your vision, and after that, it changes your demeanor, the kind of person you are. So I want to try it. I'm going to do that. We're going to take a few minutes. I want you to find two other people. So you can find two people close to you, right? just really close to you. And in turns, one at a time, I want you to pray a prayer of thanks. And the next person says thank you for, and grateful for, thankful for. And I want, for, it could be for personal, it could be for the community, it could be for, it doesn't really matter. I want you just to pray prayers of thanks and take turns. You do one and, and et cetera, et cetera. And see how long you go before it gets quiet. All right? I'm not not forcing us to go. Like, I mean, if you do go off and it takes 30 minutes, I'm going to have coffee, you know, and I'll say amen somewhere along the way. But just just do that. But you can't ask anything. You cannot ask God for anything. No asking. Just thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, and just see how long before it gets quiet. Taking a turn to do one each. All right. And if it doesn't get quiet after about five minutes, then we'll we'll go on. Go on, do that and see if it doesn't change the way you, th- you feel. Turn to two other people, get three people, make sure you're in threes. And if you catch, if one of your group starts asking God for something or even sounds like asking God for something, slap them. Now don't slap them. Say, hey. <clears throat> your thoughts have changed to, to good, good and more positive things. But it takes discipline, doesn't it? Just being thankful. How many of you, did anyone, did any group start asking God for anything? Saying, thank you God for this and please. Anyone do that? Go on, put your hand up if you did that. Go on, be honest. Yeah, yeah. It's so easy because it's how we work as human beings. It takes discipline just to be thankful. And it's not wrong to ask because it's in the context. But it's even like what Donna was sharing this morning, wasn't it? You know, praising God even when you don't feel like it. That it changes you, that it refocuses your mind, doesn't it? It takes discipline. But here's what happens. And then verse 7 comes where Paul says this, doesn't he? He says, and the peace of God. Then the peace of God comes, which transcends all of understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that peace that Paul is talking about is not the absence of struggle. He's not talking about the peace that is the absence of struggle. Okay, then, then struggle will cease. And the peace that we're talking about here is not that struggle will cease. It's finding God in the middle of it. It's recognizing him. Remember the guys in Emmaus? It's Jesus. It's we recognize him when we change our focus and that he's there, recognizing that he's there, finding God in the middle of the struggle. That's the peace. The peace is in the absence of struggle. 
And that's really important to understand. And Paul finishes this section with verses 8 and 9. And let me just read them. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, and all the things that you were thanking God for will probably fall into this category. Everything you thought God would fall into one of these. You know, something that's true, something that's noble, something that's right, something that's pure, something that's lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learnt or received from me or heard or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Great summary and a great exhortation. Think good things and do good things equals peace. Remember, not the absence of struggle, not the absence of pain, not the absence of disagreements, and yet peace. Focus on good things, and this so obviously changes our perspective. Think about such things. Do good things. And Paul finishes with this magnificent promise, doesn't he? And the God of peace will be with you. Not your whole life will be peaceful. Notice it doesn't say that. It says, the God of peace will be with you. I read this, this, this little section in an article. Yes, there is the immediate reality of a world in which human beings are constantly at war somewhere, betraying one another, brutally suppressing each other in order to get ahead, and so forth. This was true of the Roman Empire, and it's true today. Every day we hear and see a culture that focuses on what is false, dishonorable, unjust, impure, and shameful. We begin to think that to act hopefully in such a world is unrealistic. But Paul sees another reality. He sees the reality that holds the future. This is the reality of God's redemption, already here and yet drawing near. Training our minds to think of this reality and thereby to act with hope is a daily mental discipline. For such a discipline, we need to experience the counter-reality of God's rule in the middle of tangible human relationships. If anyone wants that, I'll send that quote to them. It's wonderful. God is more than capable of carrying our concerns and issues. He dealt with the biggest issue we had and we weren't even aware of it, our sin. He restored peace in our relationship with him. Sin broke that peace. Sin was the conflict, wasn't it? And sin disturbed the relationship greatly and it had to be dealt with. You know, one of the things that can really get me down is, is sin when I, when I try to, and, and my anxiety and worry can be built around, you know, regret and sin and things that I can't seem to change or things that have happened in my past. Tim Keller had this great, uh, has this great quote in his, one of his sermons and, and he says, you know, for every one thought about your sin, train yourself to think of five thoughts about the Saviour. Every one look at your sin, look at your Saviour five times. There you go. Jesus carried our sin, restoring that peace, finalising, finishing the conflict and restoring that peace between us and God, removing anxiety of death that leads to destruction and replacing it with the joy of life everlasting with him. That's what we have. That's what the cross was all about. And that's why the cross is the answer to all conflict. Because it was the result of conflict and yet it resolved conflict. Jesus knew that this was what he was doing. And he knew that in a crazy world, it would do us really well to stop and remember this. And believe 
that what Jesus did was enough. They believe that what we see, that crazy, anxious and worldful of conflict, is not the end and is not our forever reality, but that joy and peace in our salvation and joy and peace in our future is our reality. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could live in peace forever. That's why we celebrate this. There's so many reasons why we do, but we recognize that when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he knew what the cross meant. And when he said, remember and believe, it wasn't just, well, look, I don't want you guys to forget me. You know, put up a headstone somewhere. Remember and believe that you're going to walk tomorrow into conflict. You're going to walk tomorrow into worry. You're going to walk tomorrow into anxiety, into issues. But remember and believe that conflict was... Uh, that, that, um, Conflict was once and for all resolved in the cross. And that you are not in conflict with your heavenly Father anymore. That eternity is yours. And that peace is grabbable. Remember and believe it's so important. So that's why we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to do that. And, you know, we all know the, 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 um, the scripture where Jesus was with his disciples in the supper and... and um, you know, after he'd given thanks and, and he and prayed, he, he took the bread and he, and he broke it. And he wanted them to get some kind of picture of, of what the cross was going to look like, some kind of understanding. He wanted them to, to link it into something. He said, this is my body broken for you. Remember and believe that my body is going to be broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and as they were still probably trying to figure that out, he took the cup and, he, and the cup of blessing and he said, and you know what, remember and believe this, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. My body's going to be broken, my blood is going to be poured out and it's going to end the conflict once and for all. It's going to end it. It's going to end it. It's going to bring peace that actually covers everything. I want you to think of that. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know that your conflict was taken care of at the cross. When you know that your anxiety and worry whilst, worry whilst it's real in your life is under God, was taken care of, and God cares, I want to invite you to be part of it this morning and think of that. And so we're going to have, Joel and I are going to be in the middle. We're going to come down the middle today. And um, I want you to come and grab the the bread and the, the juice and, and sit down and we'll celebrate um, Lord's Supper together.